previously on Best of the Left. As organizers as well, we need to be very critical at this moment right now around the American Civil Liberties Union because I hold them partly responsible for that. They went to court to protect these white supremacists who were not saying we're going to have a rally and expose or excuse our hate speech, that we're also ready to fight and violently espouse that speech. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon or visit the Contributes tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from MSNBC, Backstory, Vox, the Tom Hartman Program, the Trump Cast, and Democracy Now! The American Civil Liberties Union will no longer defend hate groups seeking to march with firearms, a policy change that comes on the heels of protests by white nationalists and counter-protesters over the weekend in Virginia. The newspaper quoted the ACLU's executive director saying in an interview that after violence during the Charlottesville protests, judges, police chiefs, and legal groups will be required to look at the facts of any white supremacy protests with a much finer comb. White nationalists staged a Unite the Right protest in Charlottesville over plans to remove a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee from a park. A number of them carried weapons, according to witnesses and video. The ACLU's Virginia branch defended the right of the white nationalists and neo-Nazis and others to rally in the city that is home to the University of Virginia. For decades, the ACLU has defended rallies by such groups on the grounds that they have constitutional rights to free speech. But some critics on both the left and the right say it's time for the ACLU to rethink how they defend the First Amendment. A recent op-ed in the New York Times argues, quote, sometimes standing on the wrong side of history in defense of a cause you think is right is still just standing on the wrong side of history. Chuck Dodd spoke with the author of that critique, Kay Park. Historically, we haven't achieved a democracy that protects all speech equally and freely, um, even if the First Amendment um, has been applied to lots of different groups in an attempt to provide equal representation. Lee Rowland is a senior staff attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union Speech and Privacy and Technology Project, and she joins me now. Lee, um, that New York Times op-ed also goes on to say prioritizing the First Amendment rights could make the distribution of power in this country even more unequal and further silence the communities most burdened by histories of censorship. Do you agree or disagree? Well, broadly with that statement, I can't say I agree, uh, because we've been through an entire uh, century where we've seen the First Amendment play out. And I'd like to think that the moral arc of the universe, or at least our country, um, is closer to justice than it was when we began decades ago. And we did that with a robust First Amendment, right? And nobody could say um, that the lions of the civil rights struggle didn't overcome the kind of power imbalance and structures of racism and oppression um, that people are pointing to today. So I, I actually, uh, with all due respect to that critic and others, I think, frankly, it's asking the wrong question. What I don't is the think right the question? First Amendment... 
the, the right question is, what do First Amendment principles look like on the ground in our new factual reality? Um, and I think that's something we all have to grapple with. And I think Charlottesville is an important turning point for those of us who do free speech work to think long and hard about whether or not we're going to represent groups who effectively seek to use the First Amendment, to wield it as a weapon of armed revolt. That, that's not what we're about at the ACLU. That's not what the First Amendment about. And it never has been. So the question now is, how do we effectuate these really fabulous principles, right? The principles that all of us can speak truth to power, no matter whether we're trying to change the status quo for better or worse in your eyes or my eyes, and still do that in a way that in the long run lifts up all voices. And I know that I believe that defending armed groups who are hoping for a violent confrontation, and by the way, that's regardless of whether they're white supremacists or not, um, but people hoping for a violent confrontation are not heroes of the First Amendment. And so, I, I do think there's a risk that if the ACLU starts representing people who are more and more heavily armed, that it depresses free speech in the long run, right? Because nobody wants to leave the house or go to a protest with their five-year-old. And that's the world that it, we all want to live in. But is it just those who are heavily armed who are trying to use that as an excuse for violence? After all, what happened in Charlottesville, what resulted in, in a woman dead was somebody using a car. That person was not armed that we know of. They weren't using a firearm or brandishing a firearm. They used their car. That's absolutely right. Um, and, but nonetheless, I think Charlottesville shows uh, the, the kind of escalation that can happen when people show up armed for a conflict, right, and, and doing so under the guise of free speech. So that's, that's just a new reality. We do have an ascendant white supremacy in this country that echoes all the way to the halls of the White House. Um, and we need to recognize that reality even as uh, we maintain our principled defense of speech, no matter what you believe, even if you call for a, a horrific future that would mean fewer rights for someone like me uh, or for for other people of color or marginalized community. We're still going to defend that speech. Where I'm, I think we need to draw the line is making sure we're not a smokescreen uh, for creating violent conflict in the streets. That's well, not what the First Amendment is about, and we're not going to help it go there. Are you still deciding mm -hmm. whether or not you're going to defend some groups that are carrying weapons? Are you going to are you going to delineate between conservative groups that carry weapons and liberal groups that carry weapons? No. Is it going to be only Nazis no, and, and neo-Nazis can't carry weapons? No. Where, how do you define no, the that? The answer is no. OK. What we define it is by intent, right? And if people are carrying weapons, hoping for violence, those are not our clients, full stop. Got it. And I'm not claiming that's going to be obvious or easy in every case, but what it's going to be is about what is the intent of your rally, right? Mm -hmm. I could see a lot of peaceful patriots fighting for, you know, Second Amendment rights, all bringing guns that aren't loaded, right? Uh, those might be people we'd represent. These are people fighting for a political right. But if what they're doing is getting a permit so they can gather en masse to put their hands on their holsters, um, stare someone for inches away from their face and scream, I don't believe in your right to exist, you know, while fingering their trigger, um, that's not somebody who should be our client. And I think we need to make damn sure going forward um, that we draw a bright line there. Let's focus on the First Amendment for a second. Can you help me understand the line between free speech 
and hate speech in the United States? That's a great question, and there's a lot of confusion about it, so it's worth talking about. There's confusion in two different ways. People often aren't very clear about what they mean when they say hate speech and what they think hate speech is. It gets used in a lot of different ways. And there's also just a legal confusion. You'll hear people say hate speech isn't protected by the First Amendment. But the fact of the matter is, no matter how you define hate speech, no matter what you think that means, there's just no category of hate speech under the First Amendment. That's not a recognized First Amendment category. The First Amendment protects speech in the public sphere um, very robustly, and the exceptions to that are very narrow, very carefully drawn, and they have nothing to do with the viewpoint of the speech. They're about the harm that's likely to result from the speech. So there's a specific definition of what counts as an unprotected threat, what counts as unprotected defamation, what counts as unprotected incitement. So of the of the pockets of unprotected speech that we have, I think for our purposes and thinking about Charlottesville and the issues that the country's grappling with coming out of that, incitement is probably the category that relates the closest to what we're talking about. So speech that incites violence in other people. That is certainly one form of, of hatred. It can be motivated by um, racial or other types of bias. And it's certainly uh, in its violent objects is something that people might think of when they think about hate speech. And is there a specific case that you have in mind? So the the test for incitement comes out of the Brandenburg versus Ohio case um, from the late 60s. At issue in that case is a, a speech that uh, one Klansman gave in Ohio at this at this rally. Um, and the the account of the facts doesn't suggest that there was any risk of imminent lawlessness. Instead, what what there is is a, a suggestion by him that revengeance, as he put it, might be taken sometime in the future. And apparently that was the worst thing that happened at this rally because he was charged with criminal incitement under criminal syndicalism, actually, under Ohio law. And the court said, um, you know, when you're thinking about the relationship between speech and incitement, you have to think about, did this person intend to incite violence? And the the standard for incitement is uh, speech is unprotected because it's incitement if it's intended to incite unlawfulness or violence and is imminently likely to do so. So there's intent, imminence, and likelihood. And when all of those conditions are met, then the speech is unprotected. One thing to note about that is it's a very hard standard to apply before the fact. Right. So you can't really – it's very difficult to say we won't let you speak because you're going to say something inciting. In fact, you kind of have to wait and see. Some would say you have to wait until the horse is out of the barn to decide to arrest someone or or otherwise try to regulate their speech on right. that basis. Or somebody has yelled fire in a crowded theater. Right. Right. So Justice Holmes famously said, you know, one kind of type of speech that's not protected is falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater. It's the same basic idea. It's not protected, but how do you regulate it ex ante except to, to have laws on the books that say incitement is criminal and hope that that will have some deterrent effect on people's doing it? A number of the leaders of the groups that were in Charlottesville last weekend have vowed to come back uh, in some cases, again and again. What options do the leaders of Charlottesville, and for that matter, the Commonwealth of Virginia, have available to them to try to prevent the kind of violence that broke out last weekend? What we know under American First Amendment jurisprudence is you can't regulate people's speech on the basis of their viewpoint. 
So what else is there? One set of rules that are out there are these time, place, manner rules where you say, you can speak, but here are the number of people who can come to the park. So you don't have to say, bring as many people as you want and bring all the noise that you want and bring all the disruption that you want. So those those types of rules are, are one thing. Another question, and this one doesn't get talked about that much, but where, if if anywhere, is the stopping point in the amount of money that states and municipalities have to throw at these groups in order to host these different types of events? Hmm. And we're not talking here about litigation costs. We're talking about security costs. And, uh, you know, one way to look at that is this is the cost of protecting free speech. But there might be a... a a limit a out there somewhere on limit. that, just a pragmatic limit on how much how much communities can spend on this, um, and in a variety of different ways. The speech, the free speech rules we have, they're not costless. This is not a freedom that comes without costs. We we see how the the speech of certain speakers has a disparate impact on groups who are told that they are worth less than other Americans, that's a type of cost. We see the cost in the deaths that we saw this weekend. That's a type of cost. We see the cost in injuries to police who have to protect speakers and counter-protesters. That's a type of cost. And these security financial costs are a type of cost. So we have a system um, that protects free speech. And that's we might think that's right, and we might think that's good. Um, but it has a lot of costs, and they're not borne equally by all of us. And we just have to remember that and try to internalize that and decide how we think about that. Freedom of speech. Freedom to say. Freedom to think. This is my lucky day. Freedom of thought. Freedom of dreams. Freedom to believe that we all can be kings. In prior administrations, government has supported the fight against white extremism. They've recognized the threat within our own borders. But some of those policies might change. Maybe we hear things about white extremism being removed from the countering violent extremism focus. And I think that that's a mistake. From dozens of Jewish community centers receiving bomb threats. Yesterday alone, bomb threats phoned into 11 Jewish community centers across several cities in this country. To cemeteries and synagogues being desecrated. To police officers in Las Vegas being targeted specifically because they're law enforcement by militiamen. The couple entered this pizzeria around 11.30 yesterday and shot officers Igor Saldo and Alan Beck at point-blank range. The Millers then covered the bodies with a swastika and a Gadsden flag. We have a domestic terrorism issue that we hardly talk about because we're so focused on the threat coming from overseas. When Dylan Roof writes a manifesto proclaiming his hate for people and saying that he wants to murder people to progress his agenda, that to me is terrorism. That's no different than an ISIS propaganda video. The imagery of white supremacy has changed over the last three decades. It's gone from what you would consider your normal racist to something that's more mainstream. Suits and ties, fashionable haircuts, 
and clothes that would never identify them as neo-Nazis until they opened their mouths. So you think the solution is that we designate certain nations, maybe certain states in the United States as white states? I think that might perhaps be the ideal. And that was a concerted effort because we knew that we were turning more people away that we could eventually have on our side if we just softened the message. These days, with our political climate, we see a lot of coded language or dog whistles, the use of the Star of David when talking about politicians. We used to say that the Jews controlled media. And now they've just massaged the phrase to call it liberal media. And make America great again? Well, to them, that means make America white again. White nationalists, just like any other extremist group, promise paradise. They promise that the problems of crime and the problems of white genocide are going to go away and that you come from a very white, noble cause and that your culture is worth protecting. The problem is, is nobody's trying to take that away from you. The only problems that they have are the ones that they inflate with propaganda and with fake news where they teach you that blacks commit more crimes against white people or that Jews control the media and the finance system. These are all conspiracy theories. There's no basis in truth. And I know this because I helped create those lies from the very beginning. And I helped spread them. And ultimately, I believed them myself. And I infected that lie into other people that were innocent. And even 20 years later, after I left the movement, I'm still pulling up the weeds from all those seeds of hate that I planted which is why I've dedicated the last 20 years of my life to help eradicate racism. I wanted to talk to you about free speech for a few minutes. I think the, 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 the best response is by Eve Smith over at the uh, uh, nakedcapitalism.com. Okay, it is .com. Thank you. Okay, so um, first of all, in Boston, the Nazis had a permit to speak, but it only covered 100 people and explicitly banned weapons. You may not bring weapons. Now, that was not the case in Charlottesville. Uh, They were not limited to 100 people, and they weren't told they couldn't bring weapons. But the point that that, uh, Eve is making in this article is that There's all kinds of speech in the United States that we proscribe, that we prohibit, that we say, you know, we can draw, we can circumscribe this. We can, we can draw a line around this speech and, and extract it from public dialogue. This speech is not allowed. There's lots of kinds of speech that fall into that category. And they include obscenity. There's certain words I can't say on the air. There's certain words you could get arrested for saying to a police officer. Fighting words. Now, how is the Klan and the Nazis pretty much anything that they say not fighting words? Defamation, including libel and slander, not only do we prohibit defamation, but we give people an opportunity to have a remedy to defamation. If they feel that they've been defamed, they can sue for libel or slander, depending on whether it was done you know, in print or in, in person. We ban child pornography. It's not, it's just simply not allowed. And by the way, not just child pornography. We also ban pornography of bestiality. Uh, we, buy, we ban pornography of extreme violence. There's a bunch of kinds of pornography that we ban. We ban perjury. You may not lie under oath. That's a limit on free speech. We ban blackmail. 
blackmail us. You know, is that free speech to call up and say, hey, if you say this, I'm going to tell this? No. Not free speech. It's blackmail. We ban the incitement to imminent lawless action. That's the phrase that's used in many in many states. Uh, you know, incitement of riot or something like that would, is more specific, but that, that same thing. We ban true threats. We ban solicitations to commit crimes. You walk up to somebody and say, hey, if I gave you $10,000, would you kill my wife? They, you, know, you can go to jail for saying that. You don't need, it can even be a joke and you can go to jail for saying that. We ban joking about bombs in airports and on airplanes. I mean, you think you've got free speech? Try talking back to a flight attendant one of these days. We ban treason, treasonous speech. And we ban plagiarism. Now, what uh, Eve Smith points out is that there is something in common with all of these forms of speech that we ban. Uh, Obscenity, fighting words, defamation, pornography, certain types of pornography, perjury, blackmail, incitement to imminent lawless action, truth threats, solicitation to commit crimes, treason, and plagiarism. And that commonality is harm. Every single one of those types of speech that we ban... We ban because you because there is a specific type of harm associated with it. Stanley Fish, this is uh, from Eve Smith's piece over at uh, Naked Capitalism. Stanley Fish discussing a Jeremy Waldron thesis says, and I quote, the very point of hate speech, Waldron says, is to, quote, negate the implicit assurance that a society offers to the members of vulnerable groups that they are accepted as a matter of course, along with everyone else. Purveyors of hate aim to undermine this assurance, call it into question, and taint it with visible expressions of hatred, exclusion, and contempt. And if you watch that Vice video, by the way, of uh, which I, I guess something like three million people have seen so far, it's pretty shocking. You know, Vice did a, a documentary. They had a, a reporter, a camera crew, embedded with the Nazis at Charlottesville. And the guy is talking, well, yeah, we're going to kill people. And yeah, that girl, she got what she deserved and all that kind of stuff. And, and this, this is hate speech and it produces harm. And Eve Smith says, and yet our political mythology demands that hate speech should be tolerated regardless of the obvious and well-documented harm it causes. Other countries have hate speech laws. The United States is long past due. And I, I have come around to agreeing with this. There was, uh, for most of my life, I applauded the ACLU back when back in the 19, I, you know, I forget what year it was. It was when I was a kid. I, I don't remember if I was a teenager or uh, younger than that, frankly. Uh, maybe you could Google that. I don't know. Uh, Troy, the, the, the ACLU and the Nazis in Skokie, Illinois. And there was a group of Nazis who, who wanted to have a march through Skokie, through downtown Skokie. And, and, and as I recall, and in 2000 and in 19, uh, 1978. Thank you, Troy. Um, and in 1978, uh, that part of Skokie still had a very, very large population of not only Jews, but people who had survived the Holocaust. And the Nazis wanted to march through there. And the AC and the town said, no, you can't. And the ACLU defended the Nazis. Now, the march never happened. But, you know, all of us, you know, liberals thought, oh, isn't that great? The ACLU is standing up for everybody's right to free speech. 
And I've been kind of holding that position for a long, long time. But I got to tell you, I don't, I don't believe that anymore. I am coming to the opinion that speech that causes harm, whether it's, you know, incitement to riot or defamation, libel or slander or obscenity, you know, truth threats, solicitation, etc., that, that, that hate speech falls into that same category as speech that causes harm. Stops me dead right in my tracks. I can't go forward. Just look back at everything I've ever done that caused any harm to anyone. I just want to take a moment to give you all a quick update about our new big project, the Best of Left Social Network and Volunteer System. Now, our ranks continue to grow. We're at about 115 members so far. A dozen or more people have signed up as volunteers to help listen to programs and submit clips to be considered for inclusion in the show. Uh, In fact, today's episode includes a clip that was submitted by a listener, Scott, and our last episode had a clip submitted by volunteer John, but I forgot to make a note of it at the time, so... I couldn't tell you. Uh, What I did basically was I wrote up a list of every show that I regularly listen to and just created like a sign-up sheet so that anyone could come along and take ownership of a program and be responsible for looking for clips from that show. Uh, So far, a trickle of clips has begun to flow in, but only about half the shows on that list have been claimed, so we could still definitely use more help. Uh, If that is something you think you may be interested in, sign up for the network by following the link in the show. Show notes of today's episode and find the page titled Volunteer Listener Sign Up. We are building momentum and I am super excited to see it in action once we've really picked up speed. I wanna see the sun again. I wanna see the sun again. Getting tired of the rain and I wanna see the sun again. Let's talk about the ideology and then the aesthetic because I'm, I'm really happy you're focusing on the aesthetic because that is an interesting part of this. To, to clarify, the way that the media often covers anti fascists is that as if they are sort of, you know, these bored kids looking for a thrill. Hmm. But from having interviewed more than 60 anti-fascists from 17 different countries, I can tell you that essentially being an anti-fascist is like having a second job. Hmm. It's a little bit like being a private investigator. They spent much of their free time on the, the most reprehensible message boards you can imagine, tracking fascists across different social media platforms, figuring out who they are, where they live, what their job is in order to alert their neighbors, in order to alert their employers, in order to figure out who they're organizing with, what kind of events they're trying to set up in order to try and squash this by making phone calls and writing letters. Because every anti-fascist would much rather just pick up a telephone and have and be done with it. You know, if, if this weren't a threat, these are people who also put time into union organizing, into environmental activism. These are some of the most caring and compassionate people I've met, and they'd much uh-huh. rather be doing productive work if they could. And, and I think that's something that gets missed in the discussion is that when we see these conflicts, that's sort of the last resort. That's an indication that the other kinds of methods have unfortunately not succeeded because I could point to a number of different events that would have happened, but, you know, these white power conferences or rock shows at VFWs in rural Maryland get shut down by a few phone calls and we don't even hear the story 
That's part of what it's about. And ultimately, the, the political principle is no platform for fascism. It's an argument that fascism shouldn't be considered an innocent opinion with which we have to disagree and mobilize rhetorical arguments as to its failures, but see it as a threat to humanity, as violence incarnate, and as a political enemy we need to struggle against. And once again, we may disagree on how to struggle against it, but it's incumbent upon us to struggle. And then in terms of the aesthetics, which I think is really fascinating, is the kind of aesthetic of the black bloc, which is where, you know, people dress uniformly in black for direct action on the street. That originated from the German autonomous movement of the 1980s, and that was a strategy that was used against neo-Nazis in the 80s and 90s in Germany. We don't need to get too far into it, but in Britain, they actually decided, no, we're not going to dress like that. We're going to dress, as they called it, in casuals, which was a way to look sort of like essentially a football hooligan, hmm. so that in a melee, the police couldn't tell if you were a fascist, an anti-fascist, or someone who was there for the football match. So there's there's all sorts of different aesthetic layers to what this looks like. Uh, you, you talk about, you know, the first move of anti-fascists, at least in modern times, is something that those who opposed Mussolini could never have done, which is spend a shitload of time online. Right. Um, right. And um, so, yeah, talk. tell me about, I guess, where do anti-fascists gather online and what are their, mm. are these guys hackers? Like how, how why are they better than I am about um, finding out what Nazis are up to? Well, I, I don't know if they're better. I think they just are willing to put more time into it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and willing to dredge through the, the the mire of what this is. But I think just in reference to your earlier point, there is sort of this millennial aesthetic of not caring about things that the alt-right has capitalized upon to portray what they're doing as a joke and like, oh, I'm not really a Nazi, but I think gas chamber jokes are funny. Yeah. And that also has influenced kind of mainstream perspectives on the legitimacy of the entire conflict and as a way to sort of use as a self-defense mechanism to justify apathy. And I I think that, say what you will, anti-fascists are really sincere. And if you see what their average week looks like, you realize that no one's doing this as a hobby hmm. and that hmm. most of the people who do this work, we will never hear their names. And even their friends and family won't know their names. There are some groups that essentially require new members to alert their immediate family that they are going to do it and get them to sign a form saying that it's okay for them to do this because it's so dangerous that it puts even people around you at risk. And that's the kind of consideration that they have to take. You know, it's almost like uh, joining some elite squad in certain cases, at least in terms of the threat level. You said something else and I forgot what it was. Uh, well, I guess, I mean, hopefully this grows out of it, that there's an article today um, by Thomas Fuller and Alan Foyer and uh, Serge Kowalewski, Kowalewski in the New York Times um, about the growth of Antifa. And it begins with not a story of a concerned citizen, you know, acting like a uh, freelance spy or freelance private detective with noble ends. He's a 27-year-old bike messenger who who showed up at the rally he uses the name of a spanish anarchist frank sabote mm -hmm. and he said we were not shy about defending them ourselves in charlottesville mm -hmm. mm -hmm. i know i'm edging toward a both sides case but i just want to hear you tell me why that's not true when they you know when the when the anti-fascist group shows up prepared for a fight well i mean if you show up to counter protest neo-Nazis and the police aren't around because we can see the images 
there were not police around. I have my political experience in New York through Occupy Wall Street. And we could have a peaceful march walking down Broadway. And if someone steps off the curb, they get snatched up. So so the notion, you know, if we look at Charlottesville, there were not police around. They were guarding the statue. The the rabbi of the synagogue nearby said he asked for police protection in front of the synagogue and was turned down. So if you're going to show up to confront neo-Nazis, there is a reasonable chance that at some point they will attack you. So the question is, does it make more sense to show up ready to defend yourselves or not ready to defend yourselves? And, you know, I'm obviously portraying it in a way that leads the reader or the listener to a certain conclusion. But I think that the notion of self-defense is part of this. We've seen that they've killed people. We've, And it's not like they're like, oops, I killed someone. You, you see the interviews. They're like, we are going to kill you. We're talking about the, Nazi, um, and, na- the Nazis now. Yes, yeah. right. Yes, of course, the Nazis. And so it, it seems like self-defense is part of what this is to me. I've done some work with the organizers of the Women's March and their strategy for Black Lives Matter. The, some of the original organizers came out of Black Lives Matter it grows out of uh, Dr. King and um, Harry Belafonte's Gathering for Justice strategy of training mm-hmm. in church basements. It's how to, you know, how to get beat up, how to, um, you know, passively resist, how to manipulate the media. But and the Antifa seems to come out of another tradition. And by the way, mm. of course, I'm with you on the idea that, you know, being prepared to throw a fist or bring or use mace you know, in a counter protest seems to me entirely justified, especially when you're not just you're not just confronting people who are exercising their First Amendment rights, but also heavily armed with semi-automatics. Right. And and also the thing to realize is um, when counter protesters defend themselves, it is going to often be portrayed as a both sides were violent. Like it's rare that the media actually portrays self-defense in a political contents mm. as self-defense. It just mm-hmm. that's just the way it is. So for for people who are listening to this, the next time you see a conflict at one of these these events, just take a step back before you believe what the media says and try to think about it because if you were in that position, you probably would be portrayed as a violent protester as well. Going back to your comment though about King and the nonviolent tradition, Obviously, neither I nor really anyone that I know is saying that everyone needs to physically confront Nazis. I think that the bottom line is that it's important for everyone to do what they can and also to stand in solidarity with each other across different lines. So there's always going to be this debate. We're never going to resolve this debate over sort of a Malcolm X versus MLK perspective. Mm -hmm. But there are ways that these two perspectives can complement each other and we can focus our opposition on neo-Nazis rather than sort of turning inward in in a counterproductive way. question is, I'm with free speech, too. I love free speech. But my question is, what's the difference, and this is to the Trump supporters, and if you can answer it, that's even better, between uh, the neo-Nazis having the ability for Ziegel and their swastikas and Colin Kaepernick and Jeremiah Wright and their free speech. What is the difference between the two? I was just curious. There's a huge difference, and it has to do with harm, you know, with violence. 
Colin Kaepernick is not calling for anything that anybody could get beat up, shot, put in prison, murdered, whatever, over. You know, he's he is calling for for justice. That's what Colin Kaepernick is doing. Uh, The Nazis are not calling for justice. They're calling for racial division. They're calling for the for the not just uh, separation and exclusion of people of color from normal uh, discourse in society, but in, in some cases, even the death of those people. And um, so I, I, I think that there's a huge difference. And and that's, you know, when I'm saying I'm I'm gradually moving toward thinking that the European take on hate speech, which, by the way, the the it's looking increasingly like all the guys involved with the killing in Barcelona last. What was it, Thursday or Friday last week? Mm-hmm. Um, all the guys associated with that were all from one little town way up in northern Spain that happens to have one crazy imam who uh, has been clearly influenced by Saudi Arabian Wahhabism. And so, you know, I'm guessing that the Spanish are going to say this is hate speech. This guy inspired these people to murder a bunch of people. That is that inspiration was hate speech in and of itself and hold that imam accountable. And I would support that if there if you could draw that line of causality, it's something for the courts. But you have to you would have to prove, you know, in a court of law. And so I would say that anybody whose speech could lead to, you know, some substantial harm, some measurable harm, not not just, you know, my feelings are hurt, but actual harm, that that would qualify as a crime. And, and right now, by and large, it does. You know, I mean, if, if you threaten somebody w- with physical violence, that threat is illegal. So, you know, I, I just it may be that we already have these laws and we just need to be, you know, more rigorous in the way that we enforce them. Ads come and go. For instance, you may have noticed that there haven't been many recently. That's why it's important that memberships create the solid base of financial support we need. We're now set up on Patreon to make it easier than ever to contribute. Donations start as low as a buck a month, but for a bit more, memberships include a separate members podcast feed, which includes ad-free versions of the show and members-only bonus content. Plus, higher-level membership donations come with a brand new Trump-era-themed nickname. So for 10 bucks a month, you are are dubbed a professional protester, while 20 bucks per month makes you a full-blown social justice warrior. So to support our work and get instant access to all of that, either find Best of the Left on Patreon or visit the Contributes tab at bestoftheleft.com. As always, I want to thank a couple of members by name, and today that's Danielle Lamana and Chris Lachat. Apologies for any mispronunciation. Both Danielle and Chris are social justice warrior level members, so huge thanks to them for going above and beyond, and to all other members and donors who help keep the show going. President Trump is facing widespread criticism for his latest comments on the deadly white supremacist protest in Charlottesville, Virginia. Speaking at Trump Tower Tuesday, Trump said the violence was in part caused by what he called the alt-left. Okay, what about the alt-left that came charging him? Excuse me. What about the alt-left that came charging at the, as you say, the alt-right? Do they have any semblance of guilt? Let me ask you this. What about the fact that came charging, that they came charging with clubs in their hands, swinging clubs? Do they have any problem? I think they do. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, 
That was a horrible, horrible day. Wait a minute. I'm not finished. I'm not finished, fake news. That was a horrible day. Mr. President, are you putting what you're calling the alt-left and white supremacists on the same moral plane? I'm not putting anybody on a moral plane. What I'm saying is this. You had a group on one side and you had a group on the other, and they came at each other with clubs, and it was vicious, and it was horrible, and it was a horrible thing to watch. But there is another side. There was a group on this side, you can call them the left, you've just called them the left, that came violently attacking the other group. So you can say what you want, but that's the way it is. President Trump's comments were widely decried. Former Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney tweeted, no, not the same. One side is racist, bigoted Nazi. The other opposes racism and bigotry, morally different universes, unquote. Earlier this week, Cornell West appeared on Democracy Now! He painted a very different picture of Charlottesville than President Trump, saying anarchists and anti-fascists saved his life. Absolutely. You had a number of the courageous students of all colors at the University of Virginia who were protesting against the neo-fascists themselves. The neo-fascists had their own ammunition. And this is very important to keep in mind, because the police, for the most part, pulled back. Uh, the next day, for example, although the 20 of us who were standing, many of them clergy, uh, we would have been crushed like cockroaches if it were not for the anarchists and the anti-fascists who approached over 300, 350 anti-fascists. We just had 20, and we sing in this little light of mine. You, see, you know what I mean? So that the, the, Antifa the, the, meaning anti-fascist. The anti-fascist. And, and the crucial of the anarchists, because they saved our lives, actually. We would have been completely uh, crushed, and, and I'll never forget that. To look more at the anti-fascist movement known as Antifa, we're joined by Mark Bray, lecturer at Dartmouth College, his new book, Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook. First, pronounce it for us, Mark, and then talk about Antifa. Yes, well, it, it's pronounced Antifa. The, the emphasis is on the first uh, syllable, and it's pronounced more on than and, so Antifa is commonly mispronounced. But Antifa, of course, is short for anti-fascist. And, you know, President Trump's comments that the alt quote-unquote alt-left and alt-right are equivalent moral forces is really historically misinformed and morally bankrupt. The anti-fascist movement has a global history that stretches back over uh, about a century. You can trace them to Italian opposition to Mussolini's black shirts, uh, German opposition to Hitler's brown shirts, uh, anti-fascists from around the world who traveled to Spain to fight in the Spanish Civil War. More recently, uh, modern Antifa can largely trace its roots to uh, the anti-fascist movement in Britain uh, in the 70s and the post-war period more generally that was responding to a xenophobic backlash against predominantly Caribbean and South Asian migration, also to the German autonomous movement of the 80s, which really, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, had to respond to uh, a really unprecedented neo-Nazi wave, unprecedented in the post-war period, of course. Um, and then in the United States, we can look at anti-racist action in the 1980s, uh, 1990s, and the early 2000s, which took some of these methods of confronting neo-Nazis and fascists wherever they assemble, shutting down their organizing, and as they said, going where they go. Today, in uh, an article I wrote for the Washington Post called Who Are the Antifa, I explain this and show how today's Antifa in the United States are really picking up the tradition where these groups left off, and their movement has really accelerated 
uh, with the unfortunate uh, ascendance of the alt-right following President Trump. The other minor note I want to make before we continue is that Antifa is really only one faction of a larger movement against white supremacy that dates back centuries and includes a whole number of, uh, there are a whole number of groups that fight against similar foes, uh, sometimes using the same methods that aren't necessarily anti-fascist. So it's important not to subsume the entire anti-racist movement within this sort of one category. And uh, Mark Bray, in your book, and I want to quote a, a, a few lines from it, you say, uh, most people have an all or nothing understanding of fascism that prevents them from taking fascists seriously until they seize power. Uh, very few really believe that there is any serious chance of a fascistic regime ever materializing in America. Uh, and uh, wondering about that and the importance of, un of understanding that concept of yours for those who are looking at what's happening today in America. Right. So the way people understand fascism or the way they've been taught about it is generally exclusively in terms of regimes. So the, the thought goes, as long as we have parliamentary government, uh, we're safe. But we can look back to the historical examples of, of Italy and Germany and see that uh, unfortunately, parliamentary government was insufficient to prevent the stop, uh, to prevent the rise of fascism and Nazism and actually provided a red carpet to their advance. So because of that reason, people think of fascism in terms of all or nothing, regime or nothing. But we can see in Charlottesville that any amount of neo-Nazi organizing, any amount of fascist presence is potentially fatal. And unfortunately, Heather Heyer paid the price for that. So that's partly why anti-fascists argue that Fascism must be nipped in the bud from the beginning, that any kind of organizing needs to be confronted and, and, and responded to, even if, uh, you know, people are, are spending most of their time on Twitter making jokes. It's still very serious and needs to be confronted. Can you can you talk about I mean, very interesting during the South Carolina um, protests against the white supremacists, there were flags of uh, Republicans in Spain fighting Franco. Right. So um, one of the most iconic moments in, in anti-fascist history is the Spanish Civil War. And, and from an international perspective, the role of the international brigades, uh, brave anti-fascists who came from dozens of countries around the world to stand up to Franco's forces. Franco had the institutional support of Nazi Germany and, and Mussolini's Italy, whereas the Republican side really only had support of the Soviet Union, which, as I discuss in my book, had a lot of uh, problematic aspects to it. Um, so if we look at the, the role of the international brigades, we can see that anti-fascists view their struggle as transnational and transhistorical. And so today, if you go to an anti-fascist demonstration in Spain, for example, the, the flag of the international brigades, the flag of the Spanish Republic is ubiquitous. And, and these symbols, even the, the two, the double flags of anti-fascism that people will frequently see at demonstrations, often one being red, one being black, was originally developed as a German symbol, which in its earliest incarnation dates back to the 1930s. So it's important to look at Antifa not just as sort of a, a random thought experiment that some crazy kids came up with to respond to the far right, but rather a tradition that dates back a century. You also talk of, in your examples of other countries, uh, not only the period of the 1930s and 40s, but more recent periods in England in the 80s and, and in Greece as well, even more recently, and uh, the importance of direct action uh, uh, by uh, anti-fascists to nip in the bud or to beat back the rise of fascist movements. Right. So 
Part of what I try to do with my book Antifa is draw certain historical lessons from the early period of anti-fascist struggle that can be com applied to the struggle today. One of them is that uh, it, it doesn't take a lot of fa organized fascists to sometimes develop a really powerful movement. We can see that recently with the, the rise of Golden Dawn, the fascist party in Greece, which prior to the financial crisis was really a, a tiny micro party and considered a joke by most. Subsequently, they became uh, a major party in Greek politics and a major threat, a violent, deadly threat to migrants and leftists and, and people of all stripes across Greek society. This was also true back in the, in the early part of the 20th century when Mussolini's initial fascist nucleus was 100 people. When Hitler first attended his first meeting of the German Workers' Party, which he later transformed into the Nazi Party, they had 54 members. So we need to see that there's always a potential for small movements to become large. And one of the other lessons of the beginning of the 20th century is that people did not take fascism and Nazism seriously until it was too late. That mistake will never be made again by anti-fascists who will recognize that any manifestation of these politics is dangerous and needs to be confronted as if it could be the nucleus of some sort of deadly movement or regime of the future. I wanted you to talk, Mark Bray, about the presence of Stephen Bannon uh, and Sebastian Gorka and Stephen Miller in the White House and what that means to Antifa, to the anti-fascist movement. Right. Well, the other side of it is it's not just about how many people are part of fascist or neo-Nazi groups. It's also about the fact that far-right politics have the ability to infiltrate and influence and direct uh, mainstream politics. And we can see that with the alt-right. The alt-right is not really actually a lot of people in terms of numbers, but they've had a disproportionate influence on the, the Trump administration and certain aspects of public discourse. So the, the presence of, of Bannon and Gorka and Miller in the White House really just uh, gives some some sort of a hint as to why it is that Trump yesterday basically said there are good people on both sides of this conflict, that Friday night when there were neo-Nazis wielding torches in Nazi style and they attacked uh, nonviolent uh, UVA student protesters, that he said, oh, well, you know, there's, these are good people. So part of it is the organized street presence. But as we saw, by confronting the organized street presence in Charlottesville, this, this created the question of just how bad these people are. Because you, you played earlier, Mitt Romney condemned the fact that there could be uh, a, a blame ascribed to both sides. Well, prior to Charlottesville, that was the dominant media narrative. Most mainstream media was saying, uh, oh, well, we have, quote unquote, violence on both sides. Hands up. Who's to say who's right or wrong? But by confronting this, by putting it in the spotlight, by shining a light on what these people really think, it's shifted the public discourse and, and pushed back the ability of some of these alt-right uh, figures to try and cloak their fascism. And, and what do you say, uh, for instance, to those who maybe are opposed to the viewpoints of the white nationalists and white supremacists, but also uh, attempt to condemn uh, any attempts to shut them, uh, shut them down or not allow them to speak? Or uh, and obviously the American Civil Liberties Union fought for the right of the Charlottesville, uh, the white nationalists to have their rally in Charlottesville. Right. Well. The, the, the question of how to combat fascism, I think, always needs to come back to discussions of the 1930s and 1940s. So clearly we can see that rational discourse and debate was insufficient. Clearly we can see that the mechanisms of parli parliamentary government were insufficient. We need to be able to come up with a way to say, how can we make sure never again? By any means necessary, this can never happen again. 
And, and the people back there who witnessed these atrocities uh, committed themselves to that. So the question is, okay, if you don't think that it's appropriate to physically confront and to stand in front of neo-Nazis who are trying to organize for another genocide now, do you do it after someone has died as they, as they just did? Do you do it after a dozen people have died? Do you do it once they're at the, at the footsteps of, of power? At what point, at what point do you say enough is enough and give up on the, on the liberal notion that what we need to do is essentially create some sort of a regime of rights that allow neo-Nazis and their victims to coexist, quote unquote, peacefully and recognize that the neo-Nazis don't want that and that also the anti-fascists are right in not looking at it through that liberal lens, but rather seeing fascism not as an opinion that needs to be responded to respectfully, but as an, an enemy to humanity that needs to be stopped by any means necessary. Why you sense to me. And I tell you, friends, we'll never be able to call this country our own until it's a country without. Without what? Yeah, without what? Without Negroes. Without alien foreigners. Without Catholics. Without Freemasons. You know these What's wrong with the Masons? I'm a Mason. Hey, that fellow's talking about me. And that makes a difference, doesn't it? These are your enemies. These are the people who are trying to take over our country. Now you know them. You know what they stand for. And it's up to you and me to fight them. Fight them and destroy them before they destroy us. Before he said Masons, you were ready to agree with him. Well, yes, but he was talking about... What about those other people? But in this country, we have no other people. We are American people. What about you? You aren't American, are you? I was born in Hungary, but now I am an American citizen. And I have seen what this kind of talk can do. I saw it in Berlin. I heard the same words we have heard today. But I was a fool then. I thought Nazis were crazy people, stupid fanatics. But unfortunately, it was not so. You see, they knew that they were not strong enough to conquer a unified country. So they split Germany into small groups. They used prejudice as a practical weapon to cripple the nation. 
Of course, that was not easy to do. They had to work hard to do it. You see, we human beings are not born with prejudices. Always they are made for us. Made by someone who wants something. Remember that when you hear this kind of talk. Somebody is going to get something out of it. And it isn't going to be you. We've just heard clips today, starting with MSNBC interviewing an ACLU staff attorney about their updated policy on representing armed protesters. Backstory explained how hate speech is seen through the legal lens of the First Amendment. Vox profiled a former white supremacist who had words of warning about trying to ignore extremists. Tom Hartman referenced an insightful article explaining that the through line between all aspects of unprotected speech is harm, and that hate speech can rise to that same standard. The Trump cast spoke with Mark Bray, author of Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook, looking to understand who it is that joins Antifa. Tom Hartman continued to work on defining hate speech as harmful by highlighting the differences between speech that seeks to divide and destroy and speech that seeks justice and reconciliation. Democracy Now! also spoke with Mark Bray about the philosophy and motivations of Antifa. And finally, what we just heard was some good old-fashioned anti-fascist propaganda from the U.S. War Department from 1943. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey Jay, this is Ryan in Minneapolis. I just wanted to say a quick word on freedom of speech. Pretty close to a free speech absolutist. Uh, if you read the First Amendment, which gives the United States basically the most absolute free speech right in the world, it starts, Congress shall make no law. I hold that absolutely. But for Antifa to show up and say this is disgusting, hateful speech that has no place in our society, and I'm not going to let you quietly stand by, I'm not going to quietly stand by while you make that speech and just let you do it. First Amendment has nothing to do with that, other than to protect Antifa's right to do that. Hey Jay, this is Jack from Atlanta. I wanted to respond to uh, the whole topic of free speech. In a nutshell, I think free speech absolutism is completely bullshit. And I can tell you why. Uh, if you look at the way the media operates, generally there are only certain views that can be shown in the media. And other views get restricted or get sort of laughed at. Case in point, you know, talking about socialism, talking about um, the far left. You know, generally in the media they're going to completely dis- disavow it or you know, the way that uh, Susan Sarandon kind of approved for her toward of Bernie Saunders. Uh, another example would be BDS. If you look at any right-wing magazine or newspaper, they're never going to support BDS. So, you know, if they really agree with free speech, why don't they support BDS? Because that's really the issue. Another point would be, say, ISIS. None of these people ever support ISIS rallies in America. None of these people are ever against ISIS websites or ISIS Twitter accounts going, being taken down. So it's not about free speech, it's about certain people's right to hold bigoted, disgusting views and go unchallenged. Anyway, that's all I had to say. Uh, thanks for having me do. Take care. Hi Jay, this is 
Todd Dockery calling from Delaware, Ohio. Uh, listen to your uh, commentary about uh, free speech and to frame it as either choosing between uh, supporting a Nazi takeover or uh, being a free speech fundamentalist. I would not call myself a free speech fundamentalist, but, uh, you know, as a somebody with a journalism degree and attended law school for a year, I would favor and cite just legal precedents you know, a little thing called legal precedents and uh, American political norms as the reason why for the free speech of even these hateful bastards that I've been ripping daily. But anyway, uh, I am listening to uh, talk on the left about this. I, I do, it makes me, uh, you know, as a former conservative, I know that railing against certain aspects of free speech on the left would be a gift to the right. I guess that's my biggest worry. But, uh, take care, man. Peace to everybody. Hi, my name's Elizabeth. I'm uh, in North Carolina. There's a uh, YouTube video of Noam Chomsky speaking in a round table in the Netherlands with Leiden University students that's worth checking out. Uh, you can search for it on uh, YouTube as Noam Chomsky on freedom of speech and anti-fascism, five of eight. Uh, otherwise, you'll get the, uh, the whole hour plus long talk. This one gets you right to it. And in it, he points out that the First Amendment says that the government can't prevent speech, but it doesn't say that the government can't punish it. And so it's good to remember that there are things like libel laws and slander laws. Free speech isn't as entirely free as some people like to think of it. Anyways, I thought that might be of help in your considerations. Thanks very much. Bye. This is Will from Mississippi. Regarding the Antifa situation, I just want to say that the Constitution is not a suicide pact, and if there is a slippery slope involved in meeting fascist violence with violence in defense of people fascists would kill, I could slide down that slope a little bit. You know, we need to be real about how dangerous these people are and what the historical consequences of meeting fascism with nonviolence are. I'm not going to reference the names of these places, but um, I think you get the basic idea. I guess that's it, Jay. Thanks so much for all you do. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I have a lot to get to today. Lots of things I want to read to you that are all in reference to today's episode. As I mentioned previously, I, I, I opened up this question about free speech not just to you uh, to call in on a voicemail line, but also on the Best of Left social network, asking for people to leave responses there. And one of the most interesting uh, comments that came in was from a retired criminal defense lawyer who had this to say. 
I think there are plenty of exceptions to the First Amendment long settled by law. I often defended people accused of terroristic threats, so I was surprised by the controversy over what I saw as the Charlottesville Nazi marchers' obvious criminal offense. Their words were plainly a deliberate and prolonged threat, and their weapons and demeanor made the danger imminent. My clients had brown skin, so they usually went to jail. These yahoos get to argue about their rights. It is a stark illustration of white privilege. So that was what Kathleen had to say on the topic. I also wanted to read a, a little bit more from the article that Tom Hartman was referencing, where he uh, lay, you know, the article that lays out all the different kinds of unprotected speech, obscenity, fighting words, defamation, child pornography, perjury, blackmail, et cetera, et cetera. And th- these are the, the two paragraphs in that article that follow the list. Do you see the commonality in there? It's harm. Speech that is not protected by law ultimately creates or perpetuates harm. Hate speech creates harm. The very point of hate speech is to negate the implicit assurance that a society offers to the members of vulnerable groups that they are accepted as a matter of course, along with everyone else. Purveyors of hate aim to undermine this assurance, call it into question, and taint it with visible expressions of hatred, exclusion, and contempt. What the Vice video and most of the other Charlottesville coverage shows is an exercise in hate speech. Hate speech creates harm that is arguably more egregious than any related to the types of speech in the above list, and yet our political mythology demands that hate speech be tolerated regardless of the obvious and well-documented harm it causes because there is some mysterious greater harm awaiting us should we act to extend to all of our citizens the implicit assurance incorporated into our Constitution and protections from harm found in our jurisprudence. Other countries have hate speech laws. The United States is long past due. So that's the couple of paragraphs from that article. I want to make sure you heard. That's sort of the, uh, the you know the the real punchline in there. I also wanted to mention my takeaway from uh, the Trump cast clip today is that let's say we implemented uh, hate speech laws, we banned hate speech. Uh, in the same way that we ban, uh, you know, obscenity and all the, those other things, it's still a reactionary law. It's it's not proactive. We, we are not going to get ourselves to the point where we are, are going to have a set of laws that says this group of people is never allowed to march or never allowed to speak because of what they are likely to say. And I, th- I think that that's actually a perfectly fine compromise, uh, as was talked about in, in that clip. You really can't prove harm in advance, and so you have to wait until something happens. And the other really important aspect is that just because someone has said something you know, hateful or harmful in the past, they do not then lose their free speech rights into the future. So they get to try to redeem themselves, or they get to make another effort to make their point in a way that is you know, not harmful or whatever. So, so you can't stop people from speaking. But as she sort of laid out, the hope is when you have laws in place that make it illegal to uh, you know conduct various forms of unprotected speech, that the fact that it's on the books is hopefully a preventative measure in and of itself. And then if someone goes and creates harm with their speech, then they can be reacted to 
in, and, you know, after the fact and, and people could sue basically and have standing to say this speech led to harm and now I'm suing for damages basically. And, and then finally, the, the last uh, article I want to quote for you is it's a really interesting one that I'm, I'm pretty sure a listener sent to me. Unfortunately, I don't have the listener's name. My apologies. But I, I recommend reading the whole thing. Actually, just Google tolerance is not a moral precept and read through the whole thing. It's a, it's a well-argued article. The central goal of the article is to explain why, for instance, fascists and anti-fascists are not in the same moral universe. And so this is a, you know, a very intellectual and very thoughtful way of seeing this as opposed to, for instance, the Donald Trump perspective of, well, they both had bats, so they're both pretty much the same, right? So uh, think of it in that context of, of those two groups, the you know, the aggressors and the responders. So just an excerpt from that article. Tolerance is not a moral absolute. It is a peace treaty. Tolerance is a social norm because it allows different people to live side by side without being at each other's throats. Tolerance, viewed as a moral absolute, amounts to renouncing the right to self-protection. But viewed as a peace treaty, it can be the basis of a stable society. Its protections extend only to those who would uphold it in turn. To withdraw those protections from those who would destroy it does not violate its moral principles. It is fundamental to them, because without this enforcement, the treaty would collapse. It is appropriate, even ethical, to answer force with proportional force when that force is required to restore a just peace. So keep those comments coming in. The number, as always, 202-999-3991, or join us on the Best of Left social network. Find a link to that in the show notes right on your device or on the website for this episode. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on Patreon.com, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofaleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained
The ACLU defends the Nazis' right to burn down ACLU headquarters. It's the Onion Radio News. I'm Doyle Redland. American Civil Liberties Union officials announced today that the organization will go to court to defend a neo-Nazi group's right to burn down their headquarters. ACLU President Nadine Strassen. If we take away these Nazis' right to burn down our headquarters, we take away everyone's right to burn down our headquarters. Making the case more controversial is the neo-Nazis' demand that the ACLU's entire staff be in the building at the time of the blaze. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News, online at theonion.com.